We're one minute late. I guess we need to get started. Everyone uh, except Mike and Jason, I go on mute. Where they all set? Oh, little heads up. Jason is on vacation. Oh, okay. Pressure, pressure on Mike and Hunt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you know, we'll try to handle the pressure. I'm up to it. I think Mike is up to it. Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence, Jason Wallace, and Mike Nicoletti. Each week, we discuss topics ranging from geopolitics and macroeconomics to energy and technology. You can sign up for our newsletter at telltales.us. That's T-E-L-L-T-A-L-E-S dot U-S. For additional data and content, you can use to follow along. The following conversation is intended for informational purposes only. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Good. For the first time in a long time, we're going to start with page one. (laughs) We normally start with the last page. And I apologize, but these numbers came out just a couple hours ago. But I'm going to talk everyone through them so that if you don't have the pages in front of you, or if you have the old pages, you won't be at a disadvantage. Page one is a comparison of Apple, Google, and Tesla. Why pick these three names? I guess, I guess the reason for grouping these three is to evaluate Tesla. Because Elon Musk says at regular intervals that his goal for Tesla is to reach or surpass Apple. Kind of extraordinary. Now, just from an equity value, Tesla is up quite a lot. It got down into the like 120 area earlier this year, and it's currently around 250, 260. So it it has had quite a quite an increase this year. It's part of the 10 stocks that accounted for most of the increase in the S and P 500, and which caused Nasdaq to go up 30 percent when the S and P 500 only went up 15 percent. And the average stock in the Russell index went up about five or six percent. So now we've talked about step changes and the two entities that Mike and I and Jason think are candidates for step changes are Tesla and NVIDIA. And unfortunately for us as investors, unless we own them, they're a heck of a lot more expensive after the first half of the year. It's not to say that Alphabet or Apple are bad investments, but here's the point. And by the way, I'm going to get through five minutes or so here, and we're going to talk a little bit about oil and gas markets, and then we'll revert to the subject. How much is a really good company worth? What's a really good company? A really good company is one that it can increase its free cash flow by... 10% 10% a year on average, at least 10%, and which is trading for not too much more than a 3% free cash yield, which is 30 times free cash flow. Both Alphabet and Apple check those boxes. Now, if you look at the interim reports for the first three months of this year, Apple was EBITDA and free cash flow is actually down a little bit, as was Google or Alphabet. So you can say, what's this 10% increase in free cash flow about? But we, we being, you know, the three of us 
are pretty confident that Apple, despite its large size, and Alphabet, despite its large size, Alphabet trading for 1.5 trillion equity value and Apple trading for 3 trillion equity value are fairly good bet to compound their free cash flow 10% a year over the next five years. And before I go any further, I'm, I'm going to ask Mike and Jason, if you were here, if they agree with that estimate of free cash flow growth for Apple and Alphabet over the next five years. Over to you, Mike. Yes, I do agree with that. I think the dynamic of the internet has made it so that larger companies, it's actually easier to grow a larger company than it is a smaller company, which is kind of the opposite of the the last hundred years, if you will. So I, I think that dynamic of large companies winning continues. There's not, nothing that I'm seeing so far when it comes to AI or large language models that doesn't reinforce that fact. So Apple, particularly with the, the services business that is spawned from the ecosystem that they have. And then Google, maybe there's more questions about it, but nobody has a better reach on the actual internet than Google does. So I think, I think both are well positioned to accomplish those goals. Those are very high multiples. And we're going to come back to Tesla in about five minutes. But just to show how high those multiples are, let's swing... I'm not going to comment on natural gas pricing. Obviously, the heat helps, and natural gas pricing is somewhat better. I'm not going to comment on oil pricing. You know, slower comeback to industrial growth in China hurts, but Saudi Arabia, OPEC plus, are curtailing production. We would, you know, I think it's a reasonable estimate that that an oil price of in the low 70s for both Brent and WTI and be the average for the rest of the year. Not going to comment on the U.S. government cash flow, which is Exhibit A, except to point out that the Supreme Court ruled out for giving $400 billion of, of, of student debt as to be a positive in terms of the government's cash flow. What I am going to do is take an area that for 40 years of investing effort I know pretty well, which is investing in energy. For those who have an old copy of the 20 pages, there's no change in the energy pages. I'm going to go first to page nine. And once again, for those without the pages in front of you, I'll, I'll talk you through these. We take that same analysis of what is the company trading times free cash flow and Remember, free cash flow is the amount of capital spending a company has to do to have some unit production growth. So if you're an oil company, and this page is Exxon, Chevron, Conoco, and Oxy, if you're a company producing oil, that means you'll, you'll produce at least the same as you produced last year and maybe a slight swing up. To do that, spending way less cash flow than you're then in CapEx, a, a small portion, half or less of your cash flow, means that you're really performing well. So I would say these four companies are really performing well. Let's go to enterprise times free cash flow, seven times for Exxon, eight times for Chevron, eight times for Conoco, and five times for Oxy. 
those are free cash yields in the 12, 13, 14, and in Oxy's case, 20% range. What's going on here? There is some commodity risk to these cash flows. There is a risk that they will be able to continue to spend half their cash flow and have unit production growth, but those are pretty low multiples. How do you reconcile investing in Apple or Google at 30 times free cash flows compared to these companies at seven or eight times free cash flow? Clearly, the answer is the chance of these companies compounding their free cash flow at 10% a year over the next five years is much lower than the chance of Apple or Google doing it. Now, does that mean they're poorly run? Not at all. But in order to compound your cash flow with no help from oil and gas pricing, it might be lower any time over the next five years. You've got to increase your production 10% a year. That will be extremely hard for any of these companies to do. With that commentary, let's turn to midstream companies. The next page, page 10, is Kingdom Morgan Enterprise Energy Transfer and Western Midstream. The theory here has been that these companies should trade at higher multiples because they don't have to spend as much money on CapEx to maintain their business. These companies are trading anywhere from 10 times in Western's case all the way up to 17 times in Kinder's case. So those are free cash yields in the 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 range. Will these companies be able to increase their free cash flow 10% a year over the next five years? I would give you a higher probability of Exxon Chevron being able to do that than these companies. They are tied to the service, to the customers they service, which are the upstream companies. And they're all got a fair amount of debt and they have to be careful and they, and they all have fairly high distributions. So unlike the upstream companies we're about to look at, they've not reduced their debt. Their debt at times their free cash flow is four, which is midstream, uh, with Western midstream, but it's as high as eight for Kinder. So they just haven't made much progress on the debt. That is not necessary. Now, are these bad things to own? I don't think so. I mean, you get in enterprise, which is probably the best of them, a seven and a half percent yield, but it is worrisome when a company, I mean, Apple, Google, they don't have no debt. Exxon, Chevron basically have no debt. Let's turn to page 11, which is the upstream companies, EOG, Magnolia, Permian, and Diamondback. These companies are trading it at higher multiples than Exxon and Chevron, you know, generally ranging around eight, nine, 10 times free cash flow. Because they're smaller bases, there is the possibility of increasing their unit production, their oil and gas production by 10% a year. Hard to do. If I had picked these four companies and established a probability for one of them doing it, I'd give you maybe a 20, 30% chance that one of them could do it. I would give you virtually 10% or less chance than any of the midstream and probably the same for Exxon and Chevron. So. Somewhat higher multiple is due here, but those turn into 9, 10, 11, 12% free cash yields. If we turn back to page one and we go through Apple and Google, why do you pay 30 times free cash flow a 3% yield? If there's a fair chance that they can compound their free cash flow 10% a year 
a 3% free cash yield plus 10% growth is around 13%, which is about where Exxon or Chevron is. Maybe uh, EOG and, and the other upstream companies are a little lower yield than that, and the midstream companies as well. It's the 10% growth that enables you to go to 30 times free cash flow. Now, I'm going to pause for a second and see if Mike has anything to that I've omitted or misstated. No, I think that's right. I mean, I, I think oil in general has some other headwinds, if you will, from ESG-related investing or reasons like that that maybe make it less palatable to hold that maybe drive the valuations a little lower than they should be. But at the end of the day, the upside for growth doesn't seem to be there. It, it's, it's just too hard. Mm -hmm. Only a few basins in the world are going to give you that opportunity to spend half your cash flow and have unit production growth. And those basins are basically our two Permian basins, the uh, Delaware and the Midland. It's very hard to do elsewhere for, for, for quite a while. Oh, we're incomplete in terms of reviewing uh, upstream companies because we've left out the gas companies. So page 12 is the gas companies, Antero and EQT and Chesapeake. These companies have grown their business by specializing in the Marcellus, which we produce about 100 bees a day of gas in our country. And 35 of that comes from the Marcellus. If you go back long enough, say 10 years or so, the 35 was almost zero. Marcellus happened because of technology, because of horizontal drilling and fracking technology was able to withdraw the gas. These companies are very closely aligned. They're trading for eight and a half or nine times free cash flow for about a 12% free cash yield. Would I give in the Marcellus a chance for these companies to grow their production 10% a year? Maybe if there were no limitations. Mike talked about ESG affecting oil. One of the things that's happened in the Marcellus is in the Biden administration, it's been next to impossible to get pipelines approved to get the gas out of the Marcellus to a market. And the Northeast market is reasonably well supplied. Gas used to come from Texas and Louisiana to the Northeast. Now it doesn't. Now it comes from the Marcellus. And in fact, Marcellus gas to seek markets goes to the Gulf Coast for LNG export. So if we elected Ron DeSantis or some Republican in 24, would these become better investments? I think so, because I think they have the inventory where they could possibly, I'd say, possible, not probable, grow their production 10% a year, spending only half their cash flow. But you're going to need a change in terms of uh, the way our federal government regulates uh, gas especially having new gas pipelines. Back to page one, how do we square Tesla trading for 100 times free cash flow? Or turning to page three, how do we square NVIDIA trading for 130 times free cash flow? Now, Tesla first, because Mike's done quite a lot of work on this. Basically, what Mike has done is he's tried to figure out how long it takes for Tesla's free cash flow to grow enough so that you get it down within that 30 times range. With that, over to you, Mike. 
Tesla has fairly transparent goals. The company's stated goal is to get to 20 million units per year by the end of 2030, which would be incredible. And I've forecast what we think is a relatively conservative view on that at at about 11 million. So given that kind of trend rate of growth, we're expecting that the current valuation is justified in Q3 of 2027. So sometimes that's a helpful gauge to give you an idea of how far forward looking the market is based on the data that's out there. Because if we go back to when it was trading for about 130 a share, it was really only looking till the end of 2025. So we've in the last couple of months, we've seen the, the credit it's given for expected future growth pushed farther out down the curve. Yeah, and it's a long time to wait. On the other hand, Tesla has no debt, has $20 billion of cash on hand. The other two companies I've looked at are Ford and GM. They have debt. They have legacy liabilities for employees pensions and medical care for retirees and stuff. And they're just not as strong a balance sheet as Tesla is. The other thing is Tesla is got four factories now. And the original factory in California does about half a million vehicles a year. Their factory in Shanghai does seven or 800,000 units a year. Austin, Texas is building up but it's fairly likely that it's going to be to, you know, six or 700,000 units. And they have a factory in Germany outside of Berlin, which is on its way to being six or 700,000 units. I believe their next move, they're fairly uh, discreet about uh, their future plans, but I think their next factory I've, I've seen in the press, maybe Mexico, they're doing this all out of cash flow. I mean, they're not borrowing money to put these factories in. It's an impressive performance. Is it worth 250 now when it was worth 120 in January? Well, that's what the market says. Is it something that you want to own over the next five years? Probably. Would a entry point at a lower level be good? Absolutely. Are we going to see that entry level? Hard to say. But it's certainly a company that has a step change. In other words, it can go from, even though it's large, from being at one level to two times that level. And they have a plan to do it. With that, in terms of step changes, especially ones that have been recognized this year, let's turn to page three and focus on NVIDIA. These numbers on page three, and these are new numbers that came out uh, around one o'clock today, so they should be available on the website. They, I've increased revenue to 40 million. Founder and the CEO put the stock up a lot by 100 points. Just for reference, the stock was kind of in the 120 area in January, and it's now 420 or so. So say a huge rise in the first half of, of 23. The founder, CEO, predicted at the last quarterly earnings, which were the three months to April, they're slightly out of kilter. Their fiscal year ends in January. Its sales would be $11 million. Clearly, what's happened is the GPUs that are the principal product 
at, at Tidia are in huge demand because of people wanting to put together and run large language models, which is basically what AI is about. And so the, you either run them in the cloud on your own, your own allocated server space, or you develop your own service. We talked pre-feeding Wednesdays about how much potential NVIDIA has if a high-end use, let's say, researchers in biotech want to have their own server. NVIDIA has the software, has the equipment, so they will build you your own server. Hard to say how much that is going to be. I think based on seeing the second quarter, which will be at the end of July, and their prediction for the rest of the year, $40 million may be a fairly conservative sales estimate for NVIDIA. That brings free cash flow to 10, 10, a little more than $10 million. But at the current market value of a trillion dollars for the equity, again, very little debt, more cash than debt, you're still at 130 times free cash flow. So if, if we take the Tesla work that, that Mike was doing, and we try to figure out what that means in terms of sales or, uh, for NVIDIA, it's substantially more fairly quickly by next year, I would say, than $40 million, and, excuse me, $40 billion. With that, I can turn it over to Mike for the remaining four or five minutes so he can, he can straighten out my description of NVIDIA's situation. You're spot on. So obviously the demand for these, especially the H100 server chips, has gone through the roof. And are in interesting times, right? There's a AI frenzy in Silicon Valley. All the these companies are getting funded with pretty obscene amounts of money. And guess what they're all buying with it? They're buying NVIDIA GPUs. I just read about one that raised $1.3 billion. And of that, if you look at retail pricing, what they're planning to spend on NVIDIA H100s is close to $900 million. There's a lot of focus here. And our view is that they're currently supply constrained and will remain supply constrained, at least for another year. Back to the analogy that we did with Tesla, we want to say, okay, well, how much growth are they going to have to have in order to justify, call it a 30x free cash flow valuation? And the number I come to for them is about $20 billion a quarter. So that would be an 80, that's twice what we're kind of expecting over the next 12 months. So that would mean there'd have to be a lot of additional growth. And we're going to learn a lot more in the next quarter to see where that comes from. But to get to 30x free cash flow, we probably need to see about $20 billion a quarter in revenue or significantly better gross margins, which is, you know, they're already banging on 70%. So getting much better than that is going to be challenging. So I, I think that's the optimistic perspective. Now, does it take till 2025, 26, 27 to get there? I don't really know. But as of right now, competitive pressures are pretty thin. There was one really interesting acquisition. A company called Mosaic ML was acquired by Databricks last week and provides some ability to obfuscate the software layer for AI training. But the reality is, Pretty much anybody who's anybody is still going to be using NVIDIA. So with both of these companies, I think, like Hans said, the question is, you know, will we get an opportunity to buy more at a lower price? 
in general, you always do. Something will happen. Maybe Elon Musk gets in a cage match fight with Zuckerberg and loses, and you know that sends things down. Or you know who know, who knows what happens with with Nvidia. There's talking about sanctioning Chinese companies from being able to access U.S.-based cloud computing resources. So there are a bunch of things that could happen. But the big picture for both of these companies, we think, is pretty positive. Just to close the other. Four columns on this page. Advanced micro devices done a terrific job in CPUs, causing lots of trouble for Intel. But their product launch of a GPU is off like nine months or so. And now you can get AMD at around 40 times free cash flow. Taiwan Semiconductor makes all this stuff and NVIDIA just designs it and then tests it when it's finished. Taiwan Semiconductor has a risk, the political risk of, you know, being in Taiwan or headquartered in Taiwan. It's 50 times free cash flow. ASML, which is a Dutch company that makes lithology equipment that enables Taiwan Semiconductor to build to the low nanometer, you know, five nanometer or less that, that NVIDIA needs is trading at 40 times free cash flow. So while NVIDIA looks expensive, there is a logic that the run from 120 to over 400 is is not a bubble, that there is some economic logic and industrial logic for it. But I think Mike said it well, over the next 12 months, as investors, if you only own 10 stocks or so, you want one of them to be NVIDIA, one of them to be Tesla think so because of the step change that's involved uh, with both of these in terms of getting large quickly, not just going up 10% a year for five years, but doubling or more in five years, most Wednesdays. But that that's that's our take on it this, you know, sitting here this afternoon. Once again, thanks for everyone's attention and Ebol and Scarelty will be on next Wednesday. Take care. The views expressed on this podcast are the host alone and do not constitute an offer to sell or a recommendation to purchase or a solicitation of an offer to buy, any security nor a recommendation for any investment product or service. While certain information contained herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, neither the host nor any of their employers or their affiliates have independently verified this information and its accuracy and completeness cannot be guaranteed. Accordingly, no representation or warranty expressed or implied is made as to and no reliance should be placed on the fairness, accuracy, timeliness, or completeness of this information. The hosts and all employers and their affiliated persons assume no liability for this information and no obligation to update the information or analysis contained herein in the future and may or may not hold positions in the securities mentioned. Thank you.